Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 38th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Winnie Sun. Winnie is the co-founder of Sun Group Wealth Management, a hybrid RA on the LPL platform based in Los Angeles that oversees nearly $200 million of client assets. What's fascinating about Winnie's firm, though, is how she managed to successfully build her advisory business, starting in a wirehouse with cold calling with a a unique tactic of calling businesses after hours to deliberately read her cold calling script to their voicemail and get those cold calling prospects to call her back. And then how she evolved that into a seminar marketing strategy and ultimately shifted into a niche advisory firm servicing clients in the television and movie industries, building on her own background with a television audience production company that she had first founded when she graduated from college, working with shows like America's Funniest Home Videos, Jeopardy! and Wheel of Fortune. In this episode, Winnie talks about what works and what doesn't when it comes to online and social media marketing, why she's still bound to spending two-thirds of her time in the wealth management business and one-third engaging in social media, video, and other multimedia efforts to market her business. Because as Winnie puts it, if no one knows you exist, you can't serve them as clients. And how she structured her team with a partner to support her practice and the details of why she ultimately decided to break away from a wirehouse and join an independent broker-dealer in the first place, despite a fairly generous offer a competing wirehouse had made. And be certain to listen to the end where Winnie shares her perspective on everything from the challenges of our industry's gender and racial diversity, or or lack thereof, and, and the relatively simple change that could be made to make the advisory business more appealing to young women, and why it is that she chose social media as a path to marketing as an introvert specifically to help facilitate her own work life balance. And so, with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Winnie Sun. Welcome, Winnie Sun, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael, for having me. So I'm excited to have you on the show. You you have, I think, just a little bit of a different focus to your advisory firm than than a lot of other advisors that we've had on the podcast so far. That you know, I think I, I would say, kind of, we we've talked to a lot of folks that do kind of the traditional wealth management, lots of dollars for retired folks, helping them spend down their money through their later years. And there's big pots of money there. You know, and you have an interesting business with lots of different lines and areas. You've, you've done work in the 529 plan space. You do a lot of work with millennials. And, and so I'm, just, I'm, I'm excited to have you talk about the, the, the business that you've created. Just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about Sun Group Wealth Partners and, and your advisory firm? Like, what, what do you do as it exists today? Sure, sure. Well, Sun Group started back in the early 2000s at Smith Barney, and then we um, went independent in 2011. So our clientele, we have clients just as you've described. We have clients that have retired or are retirees from mainly the television, movie, and press industries, and, and of course, technology as well, because we're here in Southern California. And we do do traditional 
full service wealth management, like I know many of your listeners do. But I probably, what makes us a little bit different, I would say, is I always describe our practice in this way. We do, at least I do, my normal day consists about 60 to 70% wealth management and 30 to 40% multimedia. 60% wealth management, 40% multimedia. That's a, that's an interesting split to the, to the day. So I, I want to ask a lot more questions about the multimedia end, but let to start, let's talk about the the wealth management end and and what that business looks like. So, so you said you started Smith Barney, you went independent. So you an independent broker dealer, you an independent RIA. What's what's the setup look like for you? Uh, yes, we're currently with LPL Financial, and we're a hybrid advisory firm, so a hybrid RIA firm. So we we do brokerage business as well as advisory, and, and right now it's all with LPL. Okay. So are you actually under LPL's corporate RAA or do they let you do your own outside RAA and you just do your custody on the LPL RAA platform? Right. So we have our own RAA and uh, we custody at LPL. Okay. And sort of size of practice overall, I don't know if you look at it in terms of assets or revenue or clients? Like how many people are you serving? So I manage um, a little around, I manage about 200 million myself. And um, we have a team of 12. So it's just around there. It's between, I would say it's between like 190 to 200 around there. Okay. And that's, that's a blend of RA advisory business, brokerage business, like you, you can, things that you've accumulated in all the different areas over the years. Correct. Correct. Okay. And how many clients is that? Like how many folks do you interact with and, and work with in the firm? We have about, uh, about 300 clients. Okay. And kind of full range of ages, types, folks that we, that you work with. I mean, it sounds like you said you've, you've got the full spectrum from millennials to retirees. We do. We do. I think our client base, I think, skews younger. My business partner and I, you know, when we joined LPL, we were, we're, you know, we were in our early 30s. Well, I should say in our 30s. And right now we're still like Brandon just turned 40, I believe. We're still in our early, early 40s. So our clients do tend to reflect that as well. Our, we do have a much younger client base. So, but our clients tend to be uh, couples, married couples, and usually power couples. So both husband and wife are pushing really hard, mostly executives. And specifically, we do have a niche in that we do work with a lot of people in uh, media and entertainment. I guess it's kind of natural being there in Los Angeles, the having the concentration there. So are, are there differences in the dynamics of working with folks that are in television and movie versus other clients? Like, is that a, do you have to work with them differently or is that just a, a place that you're known where you're now working and doing business development to get clients? Uh, well, prior to joining the financial industry, I actually owned a television audience production company. So there are certain nuances and I guess some some things about them that are somewhat different, right? Their, their need of liquidity and just the way their contracts are and the way they move uh, to the different companies. So I, I do think that that's something that we know very well. We've, we've also worked with obviously here in Southern California, a lot of clients in technology and it just seems to be a better fit since 
they look a lot like us. So we talk to a similar language and then because we all understand media and we understand multimedia and social media, it makes it so it's not just a conversation about their finances and their wealth management, but really the full spectrum of the things that are top of mind as it pertains to their future. Okay. Well, it makes sense, right? You know, you, you can just the nature of niches, you can, you can talk their business and their, their world a little bit more effectively when you've, when you've lived it for a while. So what's the structure of what you, you do for clients? Like, are you focused more on the investment management end? Are you more on the financial planning end? Are you a blend of each? Like, what is the, what is the ongoing offering look like for clients? Sure. I think we are, we definitely by financial planning, that is the core to our practice. That generally, that's usually where I come into play. I do handle a lot of the more sophisticated financial planning needs uh, for our clients. And then um, we have an area of our team that handles more of the daily trading, building up portfolios. We do meet as a committee to discuss investment portfolios, but then we do have a group that handles that as their primary function, the trading execution, you know, monitor, maintaining those reviews for clients and whatnot. So we run a very very consistent practice, meaning that everything sort of is scheduled. So in, in terms of what, like how you, how you manage portfolios, are you, are you a firm that, that puts people on the models or, or like, what does that process look like for you? Uh, we do have some models, but generally speaking, many of our portfolios are custom because we do have some clients with heavy concentrations of company stock or specific you know, liquidity needs, or, you know, they have a lot of private equity or it could have it's just a uh, a multitude of different but we well, what is consistent though is we do have a lot of groups of clients at one company so that does make it easier for us to manage the relationships okay so it's part of the extension of your of your niche that you're you're particularly deep into into a few companies in particular mhm exactly exactly okay and what is it look like from a, a revenue perspective? Like, do you, are you mostly advisory fees? Are you doing a lot of commission-based business? Are you a, a firm that charges planning, separate planning fees as well? What does the revenue mix look like for you? Well, we are mostly, we're getting to be more and more such that you know, we, we're a hybrid firm. So we've always had brokerage business and advisory business. Uh, given the regulatory environment that we are in, we're definitely skewing a lot heavier in advisory than any other segment of our business. But nonetheless, we, we do do quite a bit of financial planning. We don't charge for financial planning currently. We could in the future. It's just, you know, having come from a wirehouse where we didn't, um, in many cases. So we just kind of kept that consistent for our client base. But that could change going forward. I think the the needs of our clients and the needs of our practice are changing. So we, we're keeping very open-minded to what we're going to do the next chapter. And you said you have a team of 12. So what, is that, what does that look like in terms of the, the structure? Are those advisors, operation folks? Like how does that, how does that break down for you? Yes. So my business partner and I, Brandon and I have been business partners now for about 16 years. So we started at Smith Barney together and he leads a team that handles the selection of investments, some monitoring investments, um, you know, updating clients and what that, that's kind of in his group. And then we have our support staff, which includes, um, several series seven licensed individuals. And then 
my, I call it my team. My team kind of leads not only in, like, I definitely walk in both roles, but I, you know, obviously people come to me, every new client actually meets with me and I kind of lead on all the financial planning matters. And then, um, but I also lead in all new client acquisition efforts. So my team and I are what we, you know, we have the video team, we have social media, they all report. Uh, or we, I shouldn't say report. We all work together. <laughs> so interesting. So, so you've got kind of team support around advising clients and team support around the marketing business development side of things. Right. So, exactly. So what does it look like? I imagine you do too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, you, most firms kind of build in, in team structures yeah. over time. And yeah, I, you know, I've got a team that supports me on the, on the blogging and, and, uh, you know, handling all the behind the scenes stuff for the website. And then obviously our, our advisory firm is a whole team of people into itself. So in terms of advisor structure, like, are you ultimately still the lead advisor on all clients? Are, are clients kind of split between you and Brandon? Are there other advisors in the firm that handle client responsibilities after you do the business development? Like, what, what does that allocation look like? So our firm is one book of clients. So everybody works with everyone. And we decided on that kind of early on. I mean, that might change in the future, but right now it's been that way. So that my, my goal was always not to have a, when a client calls in, I want them not to have to say their last name. We should know who they are. And I always felt that if I needed to ask her last name, then perhaps we have too many clients. So in terms of communication, I think it's, it, they definitely do talk to me, but I think on a more regular basis on the portfolio reviews and whatnot, it'll be with Brandon or somebody in his group. We have trained uh, millennial advisors, new advisors coming in, and we can always talk about that if you want to. But, you know, that's something that is going to take some time. So really, we want, we want our clients are, are not, I, I guess... I'm sure everybody thinks this about their clients, so I apologize if this is kind of redundant, but I do feel like our clients are very special in that, you know, being, if you have an Oscar coming out, right, and you have to attend the Oscars and your movie is, you're waiting to see how it opens. I mean, they, these are very specific clients and they don't have a lot of time nor a lot of patience and a lot, they do have a lot of sophistication. So it's not like I can necessarily put a rookie in front of them. It has to be a principal of the firm. And so because of that, you know, Brandon and I have made a decision very early on it. We, we just probably, you know, to the benefit of our clients, maybe not to the benefit of us, we just decided not to grow so fast, so quickly where we couldn't maintain the quality of the um, advice for our clients, or they didn't feel like the experience ever depreciated even as we got bigger. Yeah. So do you, do you look at this as there's some capacity limit where that's, that's, going to break down for you and that you have to make a shift or are you just kind of rolling with it and see what happens as you get there? Mm. I think that's a good question. You know, I don't know. The capacity issue is a good question. I, I don't see that being an issue just yet. I think because we do a very good job uh, managing assets and we have a really specific system in terms of client maintenance and you know service. So I feel like that we're very strong in. But I do think that in order for us to grow more quickly, I think we have to adopt a model kind of like what you've described, Michael, for your own practice and a lot of advisors who are very successful have done in terms of expanding 
what we do and who we do it with and having other advisors join us, the question comes along to like, do we want to be a super OSG? I'm not sure that I I can answer that question just yet. But I think one thing I will say, you know, I speak at so many of these financial conferences. I was just speaking at Focus and I'm thinking I'm, I might meet you at FinCon, but like there's, I think there's a, a, a dramatic need for, really building more personal branding and doing more social media. And a lot of advisors have asked me uh, to help them with that. In fact, advisors are considering joining our firm just so that I can help them with that. So that's something I think we're exploring and certainly very open to to doing. And so what is the the business look like from the the technology ends? Like, or, or are you, I mean, most of us have kind of a core technology stack, something for CRM, something for portfolios and trading, maybe some planning softwares. Like what's the what's the software that powers the advisory firm for you? So right now, Branica probably speak on that a little bit better than I could, but we do use um for our CRM we use Redtail. We use several different platforms for research. So that's something that probably Brandon would speak better, but I know for sure like we use SMP, we we use Morningstar, we use fact set a couple others and really you know a, a lot of the news that we follow i think and research um, is readily available on google or on some of the various financial sites kind of the great internet is the great equalizer for access to investment research these days exactly and and my my playground is obviously twitter so i do follow so much of my research on twitter so yeah i mean i think we have fully embraced technology and, and actually we're, we're creating, I can't go into too much detail, but we're creating some software just for ourselves to use. My husband, I'm fortunate because my husband is really high level. How should I put it? He's, he's in, he's always been in technology for like 30 years, but he's, he's a very high level security network engineer. So we're actually, he's actually helping us build out some software that will be helpful for us to, to complete, continue to be highly compliant in some of the marketing activities that we do, because marketing is such a large piece of what we do. So that that's tools to help manage all the the social media and digital marketing in a compliant way, or or is that about like CRM and an alternative to Redtail? Well, it could bring everything together. Right now, we're just focused on social media and arch- archiving and you know shareability and whatnot. So, but in terms of our CRM, I, I think so. I think we will get to a point where we'll have to update the CRM because Redtail is great. I mean, it's certainly very user-friendly, but it doesn't nearly do what we need it to do, especially from a social media standpoint. We almost need like a, oh, gosh, there's so many great social media tools. We almost need a, a, a really robust social media tool that just flows right into the compliance archiving of what we need for our industry. And into the CRM, ideally, right? You know, so I can I can go to a client's CRM record and see our recent phone calls and our recent interactions and their latest tweets and, you know, whatever job change they posted on LinkedIn recently. It's striking to me that that you know, the, there are lots of tools that do this outside of the advisory space that build deep integrations to social media and digital marketing tools and, you know, automatically have bridges to so- software like MailChimp. And and all of that seems to be missing so far in our advisory 
industry where where we still kind of run CRMs like really big, fancy electronic Rolodexes from 20 and 30 years ago. (laughs) I don't even think they're that big and fancy. They just sort of work. (laughs) If anything, they're almost like, they're like just, yeah, I think of them as just like digital file folders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of how they, kind of how they live at this point, unfortunately. So you said about 60% of your day is, is wealth management and 40% is multimedia. So what, what, what does that mean exactly? That means that in addition to like speaking to clients throughout the day or, or, or prospective clients, then much of my day is spent actually creating content, creating content, um, mostly video content, some written content, certainly a lot of social media activities. And, you know, in addition to having a podcast, which, which honestly isn't a huge focus for us, it's, it's only very, very important, but I don't think we do it so well. So we don't focus as much energy in it. I would say that probably one of the unique things that we do is we have the largest financial tweet chat on social media, which is every week, every Wednesday, where we bring in, you know, close to 350 million impressions per hour. So one of the largest out there where we have various financial experts and topics and whatnot. So that's probably... What's the tweet chat? Like what? what's the hashtag and when do you do it? The hashtag is hashtag Winnie Sun, just one word. And we do it every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. Okay. For our listeners who maybe are less familiar with Twitter, can you explain what a tweet chat is? And then I'm kind of curious for how, how did that come about and, and what do you do with it now? Sure. So a tweet chat is essentially when you go on Twitter and you see what's trending at that moment, right? It's You can see that it's trending because it's there's a hashtag that's trending. So it could be like, for example, let's say today's Friday. So it could be like follow Friday. That could be what's trending for the day. Or like if Trump says something about Russia, Russia could be trending for that day. So during the time that we have our tweet chat, generally speaking, uh, Winnie Sun will trend that day during that time that we are on uh, Twitter. And we're having a discussion discussion on various financial topics or business or entrepreneur or social media topics where people from all across the globe will join in during that hour and and participate in the community and, and speak to one another, but all through Twitter. So you're literally typing like it, it goes, our, our tweet chats are so fast. A lot of people who join us for the first time say they feel like after they join us for even half an hour, they need to go and take a nap because it's, it's very high energy. But yeah, and that's what we do. We, we, we've done it for uh, quite a few years. I actually don't even know exactly how long we've done it, but it's been a while and it's just become so huge that uh, even when I travel now, it's like I have to figure out a way just to break away from the conference or whatnot to just maintain that chat because the audience is waiting for us to participate. Interesting. And 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 so, wh- what do you talk about on these? Like, what do you what do you do with them? It just depends on the the topic. So sometimes we'll talk about like, for example, we've had some several conversations the last few months on the topic of personal branding and the importance of telling your story, right? So then we'll we'll write out about 11 different questions and we'll we'll have a question that'll say like, so why do you think it's important to share with people your story? And so people all across the globe will answer that question and they'll interact with one another. And we're so we've built a very loyal community where every week we have a different discussion. We have different experts. We have panelists. And a lot of people follow what we do on social in that respect. So 
I feel like I, you know, some advisors by now are probably wondering, like, and and how exactly does that get you clients? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> that's how does a, that translate into business? Like, what, what's the you know? What's the business that's case a million dollar question. I know, and this is 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 such a reasonable question. That's actually what my business partner asked me uh, so many years ago, and you know, and now he doesn't ask me anymore. But he used to ask me all the time, and how is this good for business? How is this good for our bottom line? And why are you doing this? You know, but but the truth of the matter is that you know, if you think about it this way, if you if you walk out, let's say you walk out of your office, right? And you go to a restaurant. How many of those people are you going to meet? You might say, well, lunch is business, right? I had lunch with a very high level executive today. And so we had a great lunch, but I didn't know who was sitting behind me or next to me or anybody else. So although I was in a very high profile place, I didn't meet that many people. And if you think about when you go to cocktail hour, how many people are you going to meet that night? I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly the most outgoing person. So I might be three or four people. I'll, I'll, I'll be sitting in a corner and wherever like the back quietest yeah. corner of the places. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Cocktail parties is not my thing. Me neither. I mean, I am a true introvert to the to nth degree of um, definition. So for someone like myself, who just isn't great at those types of activities, it just doesn't come natural to me. What's your other option? The other option is, and this came from all my work in television and the television audience production company, I understood the importance of building that audience because it doesn't matter how good a financial advisor you are. If no one knows that you exist, you essentially don't exist. And eventually you will get to a situation where you have nobody to serve. You have no clients to serve and no one to, you know, contribute to pay and support your team. So you're going to be in a pickle. So I realized, you know, now I'm a parent of three very young children. My, my, oldest is eight. My youngest is three. And um, I wanted to be able to have life balance and be with my children and everything else. So it, it enables me, social media activities like this tweet chat enable me to come to a same place every week where people expect me to be there and can interact with me. So while I'm talking to you right now during this very special time, I have people and processes and things out there uh, still prospecting for me. So I have, I have duplicated myself, which, you know, uh, my business partner says you've duplicated Winnie. So I've duplicated Winnie out there. So it does, it certainly has given me uh, quite a bit of business to give you an idea. I just signed a client from LinkedIn when I first started doing LinkedIn and it, it was a healthy eight figure client. And, uh, just like this literally happened about two weeks ago, I get a message on Facebook saying, Winnie, do you work with nonprofits? And I said, well, yes, of course I do work with nonprofits and this is what I can do for them. And they said, okay, great. Well, I'll, I'll ask them if they have an interest and if they do, I'll circle back with you. And so two days later, I get a mess or get a call and they say, uh, they said, well, I read your Wikipedia profile to them and they decided that you were the one we voted as unanimous. So we've already made instructions to the other advisor to liquidate into cash and you just send us a transfer of paperwork and we'll send it over. We didn't even talk about investments. We didn't talk about fees. We didn't talk about anything. Just based on that, uh, it's a healthy seven-figure ch- account that's coming over. So yes, social media has been very good. And so they, they found you through the social media world? Like this is presumably someone that's been following you for a while? I mean, how, how, does, that, how does that kind of inbound business come about? Well, it's a connection. I, well, this nonprofit one, I had a connection with this person for a long, long time. And um, we're connected on all the different channels. But in particular, they are very active on Facebook. You know, so they just follow all my, my shares and, and what I do. And 
and they know they know me very very well because of the interactions that we have. So always top of mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, there's an interesting effect that just the steady stream of social media keeps you top of mind. That that you know, I mean, the truth is so much of what we do that works on social media. It's really not much more than like the good old drip marketing that we've been trained as advisors to do for a long, long time. It's just, we used to do it by trying to get people's business cards and then we would sell them, send them a printed quarterly newsletter once every few months to try to stay in front of them. And now you can just send out LinkedIn updates and Facebook updates and tweets and, and do the same thing. And you don't have to pay for all the postage and mailing. Exactly. And you can still do, I mean, certainly I think you've done a really amazing job with this. You know, we're getting to be better. I think, you know, building out that email list is critical. But I think that what we have done is we have created a reason for them to stay connected to us via the social media channel. So although I would love to get everybody onto my, like we talked about MailChimp list, I do think that, I don't think Facebook is going away. So if I can get them on Facebook, I feel like I'm 80% there. So you've been less focused on making email lists and more focused on just getting followers, page likes, things like that directly on the social media platforms? Yes, I think so. Because if you think about it, I mean, I don't know how much time you have per day. I, I imagine you're extremely busy and our clients reflect us, right? And, and think about it, like how many emails are like you receive and how many emails like our clients receive, right? So I'm sure my clients, you know, in my mind, they love me. And I know that we have a very great relationship, but I'm sure my email isn't going to be like the first thing they're going to want to read, especially if it's something like an update or newsletter, right? They're going to probably wait till later after they get all their, like the movies approved and everything and then all the talent, all they have to do. And then maybe once a week, they might read something from me versus if I post it on Facebook or whatnot, when they're in their happy place with their families and just relaxing, they might actually see, you know, what I'm sharing. So I feel like I'm being much more mindful of my audience and my, you know, target market and understanding to make it a lot more user-friendly for, for them, at least with my client base, I found that to be more effective. And so can you talk a little bit about as well about your balance of you know, content and, and doing video. You know, I feel like advisors doing social media in general, there are not a lot of us that have gotten very active with it. When you get to video, it's even even fewer that are involved. So oh, really? I didn't know that. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't see very very many advisors at all that have done things like try to build YouTube channels or try to build video followings. So I'm I'm can you share a little bit more about what, what you've been doing on the the video end, like what are you doing and, and what have you found that seems to actually work and get some results? Sure, sure. So I do appear in the media a lot. So you may have seen me on CNBC, Fox Business, Cheddar, like Megan Kelly, a whole bunch of different shows. And what I realized that that the power of video, right? It, it wasn't so much that they actually were up when I was on Maria's show on Fox Business at like, you know, six in the morning. But the fact that I could then share it, there was this kind of unspoken credibility. But most importantly, it was very easy, digestible content. So it was just, it was easy to watch, right? So and, and most importantly, I really want to hone in not only on baby boomers, which is very, very important, but also a 
our target market is Gen Xers and millennials are, are a really key focus for us because uh, we do see money shifting. Not only that, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer and I know my parents now who are in their 70s when they're contemplating important financial decisions, now they actually see me as an adult. So they actually now they have a lot of these important conversations with me, right? And I can see that, that shift where a lot of my clients who are Gen Xers are having those responsibilities for their parents as well as their children. So it made sense for our team to focus our efforts on where the puck was going. And so how do you do that? It's it's very difficult for people just to read my Forbes column and say, oh, I want to do business with you. I mean, it's great that they do, but they don't know my tempo. They don't know how I speak. They don't know anything about me, except that I wrote a piece that, you know, resonated with them. So realize that as uncomfortable as it was, it was important to consistently produce content that triggered them to think that perhaps they need to reach out to me when they were ready, right? So we started creating some YouTube videos. I mean, frankly, I'm sure your podcast has a lot more listeners than my videos. <laughs> videos don't have a, a ton of views. But as it got better, and as we started doing more live on these social media channels, I do a lot of Facebook live, and I do uh, some work on Twitter as well, all of a sudden, the numbers started to get very big really quickly and because of our social reach, because we already had the built-in audience. So like a lot of people starting on social media, they might have like 300 followers on Twitter, they might have like 10,000 on LinkedIn or whatever, maybe you know a couple hundred on Facebook. But because I already have such large numbers, like on Twitter, uh, as of today, I think we're like at 200. 35,000 followers on Twitter, right? So we have the audience already built in that's ready to consume our content. So by sharing it on these platforms where they are, um, we've gotten a lot of traction. And it's for us, it's, it's moved the needle. But most importantly, since they speak uh, at so many conferences and I, I do appear on television shows, it also gives me a chance to get better at what I do. Interesting. So I so as you look out there overall, like what do you what do you what do you feel like is w- working the best in the social media realm and uh, and and kind of digital marketing realm and and what have you tried that just didn't work at all? Yeah, actually, you know, I was, I'll, yeah, I'll give you like I just spoke at the Focus Conference last week in Boston, and I think one thing that I learned and I shared was that you know a lot of people think well you can just post one thing and spray it on all your platforms, right? Spray it on Twitter, spray it on Facebook, spray it on LinkedIn all at once, and yeah, it's really an efficient way of managing your social media, but it's probably like the one of the worst decisions to make because essentially you're saying like, well, I really don't care about you, the audience. I just, it was easy for me. So I just did it and, uh, and not really evaluating really the context, right? And not only the platforms, because every platform is very, very different. What works on Facebook doesn't work on Twitter. It just doesn't. Uh, it might work for you in that you have not that many followers and you're not getting a lot of more followers and not much interaction. So that's consistent. But for me, I can't afford to waste time. I have very young children and a very robust business. Like time is an issue. So I want to make sure that everything I deliver out there has a good ROI, right? A good investment of my time, which is critical because I could easily spend my time doing seminars and whatnot and bring on clients too. So I need to be able to justify this social media activity. So it meant that really evaluating the different platforms, really seeking out centers of influence, the right influencers and playing in that playground and getting to know 
what resonates and also getting to know what will generate business. So not just doing social media for the sake of doing social media, but doing social media for the sake of new business development. So, and not offending my audience so that people get sick anytime they think, see a post from you, they just ignore it. Given all of that, like I'm, I'm still curious, which particularly from the business development end of, of not just doing social media for the sake of social media, but trying to drive new client results. Like, are you finding some, some platforms work better than others? You get you know, most of your business from LinkedIn, but not so much from Twitter or vice versa. Like what, what actually do you find drives business results or, and, and what's kind of turning out to be a waste of time from the actual client business development end? Sure. So I used to, if, if you had talked to me a year ago, I would have said, well, I, you know, Twitter is obviously my baby because it, it, it throws the biggest net out there, but Twitter doesn't give me any business. That's what I would have told you a year ago. It's not the case now. I definitely get business from Twitter now, but I would say like LinkedIn has been great. I've got, I signed a couple large, very large clients from LinkedIn and it's a good place, right? For our industry because it is more traditional business. So, you know, us spewing stuff about our industry is not quite as offensive on LinkedIn. And for many of us, that's a lot easier, right? Just to share something from CNBC or something for Forbes, easy peasy, right? And then um, Facebook, I think Facebook, I've had to learn culturally like what works best. But I, I have now proof of concept in all platforms, including YouTube, to having not only new client, not only new client business, but I also do a tremendous amount of um, brand business now. So like brands will come to me and have me hire me to be a spokesperson for their ABC company, whatever. And so there's, there's been a lot of new opportunities that have come from in direct correlation to what we've built through social. Yeah. We had, uh, uh, Brittany Castro on episode 32, uh, com slash 32. If anyone wants to go back and listen and, uh, she'd followed a similar path that the the growth in in social media and audience presence for her eventually led to opportunities for her to do kind of brand ambassadorship and work with some some large companies in the, I think a similar context. So when you get down to platforms like LinkedIn, because I feel like that's the well, at least industry studies would say that's the the platform that advisors are on the most. I don't know how many of those are actually engage on LinkedIn and how many say I'm on LinkedIn because once they made a LinkedIn profile that they haven't gone back to in several years. But like for people, I guess for trying to actually be active on LinkedIn, like what are you doing that's actually getting clients there? Is that like you're going outbound and trying to find people to work with? Is that you're sharing content there and then they're contacting you to do business? Like what is what does that interchange look like for LinkedIn? Sure, sure. I always think that my clients are going to look just like me. And we've, we, you know, we've all read the studies. Everybody tells us that to be the case. And I think like myself being the introvert that I am, I'm not going to be the type that's going to like really jump out. If you come and try and sell me something or even introduce a concept to me, I tend to be the person who just doesn't even, will just ignore you. I just, you know, it's just not my thing. Uh, I don't like to be sold but I like to be introduced to an idea. So that makes me to be a very hard target. But I think a lot of my clients are, are similar because I'm, you know, our clientele isn't the normal clients, a very specific type of client. So with LinkedIn, for example, this is kind of my strategy, at least from our client base, it may not work for everybody, but for my client base, what we do is I'll spend, whenever I have some time, I'll go on and I'll make connections with people at the company's 
that I already have clients at or industries that I have a lot of clients in, you know, and the majority of the time they'll connect with me for, you know, because I think I have a really good bio. <laughs> and, um, okay. Yeah. It's, I spent like hundreds of copies to write my bio, but you know, it's not perfect, but it, it gets, I think there's enough in there that somebody will find something that they can connect with. So, you know, I've got like, uh, to get, this gives you an idea of how much effort I put in LinkedIn. I don't put that much. So I got about, I have about 22,000 f- connections on LinkedIn. So obviously I, I could do a lot more, but I, I've done more on the Twitter side. But, but what I do do is I do share consistently on there. And what are you, sh- what are you sharing? Like, what do you actually put on there that you share? Well, I think you did this as well, but I used to uh, write for a nerd wallet, right? I, I've written for Forbes now for about five years now. So, so some of that, sometimes I'll share that content. I'll also share other relevant news that's come out that I think is of interest. And, and it, because I have a lot of friends, like real friends, right? So a lot of them will comment. So that continues to re-engage and spread that my content to their their audience as well. So that that's kind of how I've done LinkedIn. And so because of that, the only thing that I will message people or reach out to them, I'll even if they accept my connection, I don't send them any, I don't send a message saying, hey, it's great that you connect with me. Because I feel like if they did that to me, I would be a little annoyed only because I get so many messages anyway. So I actually don't do that. The only thing I do do is once in a while, I wish people happy birthday or happy anniversary. And that's about it. And then if they then come back and say, Hey, thanks, Winnie. That's great. I appreciate that. And can we jump on a call? And then I'll check out their profile and see whether or not I should jump on that call. And if I think there's of interest to jump on the call, then usually what I'll do is I'll have someone on my team kind of call to set up the potential call, but to filter that call ahead of time. So I do have a very strict criteria of who I can do calls with and the amount of time I can, because there's just too many incoming leads between Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I mean, I probably get, gosh, 50 inquiries a day of people wanting to talk to me for 15 minutes. That's always their line. I just want to talk to them for 15 yep. minutes. Yeah, just, I just want to pick your brain for a few minutes. 15 minutes, yeah. I don't have those 15 minutes. So we need to have a funnel to funnel to, to filter out who's serious and who's not. So um, my team is really cute at that. So what are the, what are the filters that you, you use to actually winnow that list down? Like what, what is your... What does your team look for to make those decisions? Uh, well, first and foremost, obviously, you know, are you looking for Winnie to help you manage your money? And then they say, they usually say yes or no. They might try to trick us and say, sure. And then it turns out to me not the case. And then, although I don't really have an account size minimum, you know, I, I have minimums. It's just not an account size minimum, really. It's a different type of quantifier. But my team will say, well, you know, um, we usually, Winnie usually doesn't engage a call unless, you know, at least you have a million dollars investable assets that you could transfer to some group. And uh, what stage of that are you at? Are you ready to change or, you know, something like that, something, it just depends on the contact, but on the who it is that we're talking about. Or number two, are you looking to do a brand partnership with Winnie? Then, you know, uh, we ask that your budget be at a minimum of a such and such amount, right? And are you looking for her to speak at a conference? Her minimum speaking fee is such and such. And so we have like different <laughs> criteria before, you know, by that time, usually the bulk of the people have been filtered out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I just, that's kind of the the challenge that comes if you have success in in digital marketing channels like the you know it, it it can bring in a lot of inquiries and interest the good news is that that brings some some very valuable clients the bad news is that also brings lots of non-qualified prospects as well oh, right and so yeah. just a ton i think mm-hmm. our industry i mean there's always been a dynamic that 
you have to qualify your prospects before you go and spend time with them. But, you know, it's, uh, I find once you start doing more of that with social media at a, at a larger volume and scale, it really, really becomes necessary to qualify prospects that you're talking to before you spend time with them, or there's just too many of them to talk to. And, and most of them are a waste of time because they're, they're not there to do business with you. Exactly. They just want to talk to you because they think you're interesting. And so that's another reason, like on my social channels, I generally don't include email. So, because otherwise too many people email you. So I just actually put the phone number. And interesting enough, most people don't like to pick up the phone. So that's actually a really good method. A good screening tool. Yeah. Don't put a toll free number. Put it like a regular landline number. And believe it or not, that solves a lot of your headache. Right. So they really want to reach you. <laughs> emails are free. If you put a free email ad- address out there, they're going to hit it because they're going to hit why, it all day long. Yeah, they're yeah. going to spam you. And I mean, like uh, today, uh, today for example, we've had seven calls today. Of uh, I just want to tell you, I'm grateful that we're connected on Twitter. Like, like <laughs> okay, great, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did you come to the? advisory world in the first place you know what what led you here like did you have uh, a family background that tied to financial services industry or what was what was the path that brought you to uh to being in a place like smith barney yeah, you know, no, actually, you know, growing up, my, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. I mean, we really didn't know what a financial advisor was. I think my parents pretty much, you know, typical Asian parents, doctor, attorney, or engineer. That was your three choices. Doctor, doctor, attorney, or engineer. Okay. Yeah. every Everybody else is just dirt, right? But pretty much that's what, you know, that's what they kind of raised us to believe. And so going, you know, I was a typical Asian kid. I was really good in school, had a, like a 4.8 GPA. It was like insane. It was so good. And then I got into the schools that mom and dad wanted me to get into. And then about three to four months prior to going to college, my mom pulls me inside and says, honey, you know, we know you did really well in school and stuff like that. But remember that project that we invested in in Claremont with our friends? Well, one of the partners went bankrupt. So we're going bank. We're going bankrupt too. So it was, it was scary. So it was like literally months before college. Oh, like, so there's, there's, there's. There's no college dollars. There's no parental assistance. It's not even college. It's like we had to make sure like we didn't lose the house. I mean, it was just like it was, you know, 17, 18 years old. And it was it was just that was the way it was going to be. So it wasn't it definitely wasn't a bad thing because I think it was probably I tell my parents always feel so guilty because the typical Asian parents are great savers. But they didn't, they didn't have a lot of great financial advice, right? So they just invested in what they knew, which is real estate. And they feel so guilty that they feel like they failed me because I got into some really good schools, like private schools that I wasn't able to attend, you know, for a lot of reasons. But, but I always feel like it was the biggest blessing that could have happened because I ended up going to UCLA and I started working right off the bat because we needed to make money. And that's how I got into television production. And then financial planning actually was because I wanted to better understand some of the stuff my parents were doing and I felt like I could help them. So I took the CFP program at night um, while I worked in the daytime to try and do that, you know, and feel like I could bring value to my parents because I didn't really feel like their advisor who at that point they had an advisor at Maryland. She had a very small account, but I just feel like that, that, this family friend wasn't giving them the best advice, you know, you know, a typical 20 year old, I thought I could do better. <laughs> so that's how it kind of stemmed to be. And then once I was almost done with the program, the dean of the program who happened to work at Smith Barney says, um, Winnie, you know, you're ready. You should go 
interview at Smith Barney. And that's really how it came to be. So I got, I interviewed at Smith Barney. I was sure I wasn't going to get the position because kind of like what we chatted about prior, I just went into this recruiting room of a hundred plus people and I didn't look like a single person in the room. Everybody was good looking. They're like all one nationality. And, and you're in, and you're a 20 something Asian American female. Yeah, I'm a, what I I didn't know this term until I walked into the wirehouse where another advisor told me this is what I was about two weeks into production. But I learned from the financial industry that I'm a double minority. Or double minority because you're female and you are not white Caucasian. Asian. Yep. So he says this advisor, I still remember his name and everything else, but I won't say it. But he says, you know, he was really nice about it. He says, wow, you know, the manager got a good deal from hiring you because you're a double minority. And that's when I learned the term. But yeah, so I really kind of got into the industry kind of by accident because I had a really great job prior to that working in television. I was doing really well. You know, I was working my, my clients include Americans Funniest Home Videos and everybody else. So So what pulled you over like what, what made what made you decide to make this the the job instead of just letting the CFP classes be an interesting kind of hobby and thing you learned and read on your own while you continue to to work in the television industry? Well, I, I think because my parents were disappointed, they felt that, you know, they had sent me to a great school and here I was working in television. I didn't feel that that was an appropriate industry. They didn't think that was to my full potential. And it was not law. It was not medicine. It was not engineering. Yeah. Exactly. And at least in financial, you know, the financial industry at the time, you know, Smith Barney did a great job with advertising. Like, you know, we make money the old fashioned way, you know. So although they, my parents weren't completely familiar with Smith Barney, they kind of knew Merrill Lynch and it kind of seemed like it had a little bit more of a proper <laughs> element. And then you got to wear a suit and my, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, you know, he was like, well, maybe honey, you know, cause you work from like 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. some days on these television shows. So maybe this is something you can consider, you know, working in finance. So really, a s- it might might be a slightly better. I, I think it's, <laughs> it's a striking thing, given how uh, like how hard the hours are and how much work people put in when they're trying to get started <laughs> as a financial advisor. That you chose it for better work life balance during the startup years. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, one of my really good friends, like I just had lunch with him yesterday, is Randy Jackson from American Idol. We joke about that. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I made the right decision, but I absolutely love the financial industry. So it's great because now I get the best of both. I get to do media work as well as help people with their money. And I, I do it, I, I will say, I, I think, you know, to me, it's going to sound funny because we're financial people, but it's never been about the money. I love doing it for the challenge and making a difference. And I really, really wholeheartedly uh, believe that. So I have a wonderful business partner who I trust completely, who manages and keeps track of every diamond nickel that comes in. And so that gives me peace of mind that nothing's going to get lost. But aside from that, I, I practice with my heart. And I trust that I'll have enough money to pay my mortgage every month and support my family. But the rest of it, I really don't care that much about. Like, I just want to do it for the sake of doing it. So I think, so, you know, I think a lot of advisors are going to be like, she's a complete dodo head for saying that. But that's just my personality. I, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money. It's not that huge a priority for me. My husband didn't come from a lot of money. Uh, We live very comfortably now. And so I feel like I can make more of a difference doing other things. And, and like, like you, Michael, I know because I follow your stuff and you're, you're absolutely a role model I've looked, I've looked up to for so long. And, um, I think that 
I just feel like there's more to what we do than just what we do. And so that's why my business is the way it is. It's just because I don't want it to be one way. I don't want to only be a wealth management firm. I have no interest in that. If that were the case, I'd probably get bored and, you know, and that's never a good thing. So it, it has to evolve and I'm going to evolve it to a, a firm that my kids are going to still want to invest in. And so that that's part of what it leads you as well towards continuing to do the multimedia and, and doing brand ambassadorships and, and things like that that go beyond solely focusing on the wealth management firm itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that that was the case for me because I was I was sick of and I tweet this uh, off it, but basically what I said, you know, I was just tired of the story that my industry was sharing about me. So I just decided to start sharing my own story. And and that's what we did. So now when, you know, it used to be you would go to a, a cocktail event or a social event, charity event, right? And people was like, oh, what do you do? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I work at DreamWorks. I'm in marketing. Like, oh, wow. And everyone's so excited. Oh, and what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a financial advisor. And then I, oh, great. Oh, great. Oh, you know what? I got to catch up with Betty. I'll see you in a little bit. And then they would just leave. So I call it the financial advisor stink, you know? So I felt like it was just, there was a negative connotation that if they met me, they would feel that I was going after their money when they didn't even get to know me. So I knew that I had to change that conversation and that impression. So I've completely changed it so that I've now I'm in a situation where I go into a room and they, and everybody wants to introduce me to everybody. And, and that's exciting to me. And, and now they're asking if I would consider managing their money. So the conversations completely changed. So I no longer, I can be my introverted self and not say too much. And business now comes to me. And that took five to six years to get to that point. Interesting. And it's, it's a, it's a fascinating transition, just how, how that, that turns that I I feel like there's a trend of that that a a surprising number of advisors I've talked to that have had success in in digital marketing and social media are are introverts and that one of the kind of the virtues of working in the social media space is it, it it seems to be more comfortable for those of us that are that are introverted and I'm I'm the same way I'm at a at a cocktail party, I'm I'm like the furthest possible from the action at the quietest, darkest <laughs> table. That that I'll hang out with you. <laughs> yeah, we can hang out. We can hang out together in, in the in the corner where there's no noise and traffic. But social media just kind of works. Like it it doesn't. I know as an introvert, it doesn't have the the intimidation factor. I guess I don't even know what to call it. That that just makes cocktail parties sound dreadful to me. But social media <laughs> is fun. Yeah, social media is so much fun. <laughs> yeah. So you you got started at Smith Barney. So what, what I mean, what was it like in that environment getting getting started and trying to get traction in the as an advisor? This was kind of wirehouse in the two thousands, basically. Yeah, I started production January of two thousand, and you know, having worked well, in that was, that was good. That was good timing. You uh, yeah, it was actually missed the market top by. Th- Four months. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was an interesting time. Um, well, you know, I think one of the big, biggest benefits, which I didn't know at the time, I, I joined, I got in the business at 24 years old. And, you know, I, 
when they recruited me, they asked me so much about my television business. And I wasn't quite sure why they were asking me because, you know, I didn't, I was like trying to explain to them I don't work with celebrities. Okay. You understand I don't work with celebrities. I'm only filling the audience. So I'm not sure what you're asking me, but I thought in my head, they probably think I know celebrities because of it. And that's probably wanted why they wanted to hire me. But so when I started the business, little did I know, I knew very little about anything actually, and, and definitely nothing about prospecting. But as you can tell, because we're having this conversation, when you sound like you're 13 years old, like I do, you know, that one of the benefits of cold calling is you never get hung up on. I mean, I literally never had anyone being rude to me on the phone. So <laughs> because, because you, because you don't, like this. <laughs> you don't sound like anybody else who cold calls from a wirehouse. Yeah. And they felt like they wanted to help me, right? Because I mean, I'm calling you and, and we're having, car- but I just don't sound like very intimidating. So I, I, re- I literally built my business cold calling. And I, I honestly, oh I, was like God, a, you did. I was a cold calling like powerhouse. I, I am not even exaggerating. Okay. So when I got into so what, buying, was, so what was the cold calling routine? <laughs> oh goodness. So I figured out, so I try to reverse engineer everything, right? We, we talk about being introverts. I am, I've always been introvert. So I, although nobody hung up, up on me that the prospect of calling a stranger was very intimidating. So then I figured out, well, why am I calling them, right? Because that's a lot of work. And then half the time they don't want to talk to me. They're not rude, but they just want to talk to me. And it just seems like I'm interfering with their life and I wouldn't want a, someone to call me, so I shouldn't do it. So what I ended up doing is I would come to work. I would come to work all day, of course, but around six o'clock, um, I would start calling people. And so my husband, who's like this really brilliant techie person, he created a spreadsheet for me. So for example, let's say I was calling, let's say I was calling Boeing, right? And I knew their phone number was like 714-712-da-da-da-da-da. So my husband created a spreadsheet so they had every single number on that spreadsheet. So all I would do is call at night when everybody went home and I would leave a voicemail like, hey, this is Anna Marie, leave me a message. I'm not here. I'll call you back tomorrow. If you need engineering, call that. So I'm like, okay, I would call. Hi, Anna Marie, this is Winnie with some, what, what the time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I like to... Like I'm available. This like I think my spiel was like uh, this is Winnie Sun calling from Smith Barney in Pasadena, and I'd love to get a chance to chat with you. Can you please give me a call back? And I just leave my phone number, and I would do that. I literally left left hundreds of messages every single night, and the next morning I just sit in the office and wait for people to call me back. So your your cold calling script was leaving messages because you didn't yes. want to actually have exactly. to be, deal with the yeah, people. Yeah, so that way they didn't have to tell me they weren't interested. So my ego didn't get hurt and it was safe me time and it was a lot easier because I could literally just knock them out. And and while I was doing this, I was building my lead list too. So instead of buying a directory of let's say Boeing, right? I just wrote down phone names. So, you know, if I wanted to call them again, I could call them during the day and now I would know their name. And so I I mean how how many people called the secure <laughs> I mean how many you know if you left <laughs> A hundred messages for, for Boeing folks or 200 or however many you'd go through in a, in an, in an mm-hmm. evening. Like, how many callbacks did you actually? Mm-hmm. I mean, in I guess evening? this worked. Uh-huh. You, you, well, I probably go through about three, clients. three, four hundred a night. You get, you get yeah. three. So three, four hundred a night. And I probably get like, I probably get like 12 or 15 calls back. And I mean, I did really well. I mean, like Smith Barney has their, their like, they have something called Blue Chip Council, which is really tough. And first four years of production, right? I hit every single goal. And like in two two or three years, I was already in the corner office. So I was like, I was killing it in terms of prospecting. By, by doing uh, cold calling that avoided actually calling people that would answer the phone. Yes. 
Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and the then, cold call you know, script it, was that mm-hmm. that straight flight. I mean, it was really just kind of. Hi, I'm Winnie. I'm from Smith Barney. I'd love to hey, get hey, to know Michael, you. This is Winnie. Call me back. Yeah. You, or it could be as simple as, hey, Michael, this is Winnie Con from Smith Barney here in Irvine. Can you please give me a call back? My number, da, 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 da. that's it. <laughs> so they didn't even know why I called. Just and, that, please call me back. And they'd call back. And, and then what, I mean, what happens me when they call back? Like, hi, Winnie, I'm Jim. You left me a message yesterday. Yeah, you. That, that's how, hi, it's always like, hi, Winnie, this is Jim. I'm not sure why, but you left me a message. Uh, what's this regarding? And then I would, of course, like, you know, like, you know, uh, I work with Bonnie, I'm a financial advisor, and uh, I like to talk to you and meet with the Something like, I don't exactly remember the exact spiel. This was like quite a few years ago. Yeah, and so that's how I built it. So it's just a numbers game, but because it was such a painless numbers game, I just, you know, and then what they... Because no one was saying no to you they, yeah. because you called after hours. Exactly. If they didn't call back, that meant uh, they weren't interested. And what I would do is I would repeat the process. So I would call them and then I would call them again, and then like another month over, I'd call them again. So, so where where were you getting the numbers, or would you just start like sequence dialing? Like if you yeah, know, I sequenced it. You know, if if you yeah. if you know Boeing is area code and exchange such and such, like you just do zero 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 one zero 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 two zero zero, and you just go exactly go, go through the numbers. Exactly. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so you would so like you would. <laughs> You would cold call messages all night and then take the callbacks during the next day to try to set meetings. Mm-hmm. And I didn't worry about do not call us. Um, I would screen them, but do not call us. But I wouldn't worry about the timing of it because as I think in California, we could call till nine o'clock. So that's essentially what I would do. I called the companies. I didn't call people's homes. I called the companies until nine o'clock. And then I just waited. I could get in, get in early and just wait. And during that time, I wouldn't just... And I, I guess, ironically, the... The cold calling process is very efficient when no one answers their phone. It's just however long it takes to ring to voicemail yeah, and then so you leave fast. your and 15 second thing and move on. Yeah. So you can, you can do uh, uh, quite a few every mm-hmm. hour at that pitch. And Smith Barney had these cool phones. Like you wouldn't even have to hang up. You just had this but- a drop button. So could you drop the call, just hit drop and you could dial again. So it was like, it was like, <laughs> like so fast. <laughs> and you just dial them in sequence and then write down on the spreadsheet if it was a live number and, and see who yes. calls you back. And a lot of times the call will be like, yeah, this is Betty. I now no longer work here. If you need to reach me, call Joey at this number. I'm like, okay, Joey's at this number. So then I'll put Joey. <laughs> <laughs> so were you like, you would, you, you would record the name from the voice, from the voicemail. So you would know who you just called. Yes, because exactly. Because if I, because otherwise you don't know you're cold, you're cold calling blank numbers. Yeah, and everybody says their, their name on the voicemail, so that's what's great. And, yeah, yeah. And it sounds more familiar, you know, sounding 13 years old and saying, like, hey, Joan, this is Winnie. And they're like, oh, do, sh- do I know you? <laughs> and they call you back and that's what gets you to a, a first conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, have a conversation and, you know, and then I would invite them to a seminar because I, I learned that the most successful advisor in the office, she was doing seminars or he was doing seminars, I should say. And so then um, I thought, okay, I should do seminars. So I started doing seminars and then I would invite people to my seminar. So that would be my other next call. So once I started doing one call, then I started doing other calls. And then like the call would be like, I just want to let you know I'm hosting an event, uh, a lunch and learn event um, at the restaurant across the street from your office. I'd love to see if you would be able to attend. And I would just leave that message. And then what would happen about this was this was so cool about this system is that at some point, even if they didn't RSVP, they knew the event was happening. So they felt like I had already invited them. So if they their schedule worked out, they would just come. They would just show up. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was the whole building process was cold calling and then trying to get people to seminars. What what was this seminar that you would do? Like, do you have a particular topic or a spiel, a thing that you would do for seminars that was that was working for you? Well, it's actually the same seminar I still do today. So, you know, I, I don't ever talk about product at any of my events. So I generally, all my uh, topics are personal finance related and they stem from current in for current news, like for example, like today, there's all this talk about how, you know, baby boomers aren't moving out of their homes. And so millennials are having a real estate crisis because you're not enough homes to buy, right? So that could be something I decide to have a seminar and talk about. So it's really not so much about what I talk about is how I talk about it and how I build a relationship once we're in the same room together. I, I do, as my business partner says, I show well. <laughs> so, so, um, people tend, you know, I, I do know that, you, you know, my, I, I am, I've done this long enough to know that my, uh, my closure ratio is like really good. So I just need to get in the same room with them and have some sort of interaction, you know, for them to trust me. Interesting. Interesting. So, and then, it, and then you're just back to the, the numbers game, just call, leave enough messages, get enough callbacks, get some number to the seminar. If you can get a, some number to the seminar, a segment of them are going to close, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah. So that's really how it kind of started. That was the first few years, you know, and then, and then later on, later on by reputation, you know, people found out that I was really good at doing like building business and my, my numbers were really good. And, and so then I got, I caught the attention of a very large team at Smith Barney who did stock plans. I, I'm not sure exactly how I connected with them, but somehow we got connected and then they started having me handle um, some of the executives at some of these publicly traded companies that we handle the stock plan for. And then word of mouth just spread about how, how I took care of people. And yeah, that's kind of how it got bigger. <laughs> and so, you know, how long, so how long did you stay at Smith Barney in the, in going this route? So it was, it was Smith Barney for uh, over a decade. So about 11 years. And then um, Morgan Stanley bought Smith Barney out. So I never left Smith Barney. I left Morgan Stanley. Okay. Because, right. I guess after the financial crisis, uh, everything got changed. So you so you were out a couple of years after Morgan Stanley came in to, to buy Smith Barney. Well, I mean, was that part of the – was that kind of the, the impetus? Like you were, you were happy at Smith Barney in the Smith Barney world, but the company changed once Morgan Stanley came in and, and you weren't as happy in the Morgan Stanley environment? Yeah, it just wasn't such a good fit for me anymore. Um, the, you know, I had started, um, my practice in Los Angeles area when I first started at Smith Barney. I transitioned over to Orange County where I am now, uh, at the Smith Barney office there. And it's, it's always been about being happy. Like you, you, you nailed it there. And I, I felt like the manager that I was with in Orange County, he really took me to a whole different level, meaning because of he was so strict, he was tough as nails and he was completely no nonsense, but I did very very well under that structure. I mean, it, every, everything was so fair. Everything, it wasn't that I was female or that I was like any, or I, was, I wasn't like an off manager's favorite, nothing like that. He treated everybody exactly the same. And that's where I did well. That wasn't necessarily the case with my, the place I was working at the other Smith Barney office I was at. So once I went there, I did well because I was working with him and he, he made sure that everything, he took everything else off the table. So all I could do is focus on prospecting, which is what I did best. And then when he, when Morgan Stanley bought us out, he, he was a divisional director. I mean, he was like, he was handled so many offices and his wife was a manager at the office too. And they all left 
because they couldn't handle working under Morgan Stanley. And that's, that's actually the first time he even took, I even talked to a recruiter because up to that point, everybody knew as, as Sun Group would never leave. Sun Group loves it there. You know, my manager's name was John Knopp. John Knopp was an exceptional. Everybody knew you couldn't take a team from John Knopp because he was so good, a manager. And then um, he left and literally as soon as it happened, like we got offers by everybody. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, cause the good recruiters knew that as soon as he left, all the teams that were loyal to him are going to be in play. So they went after him. Right. So they all came after us. And and really the reason I came to LPL, and I didn't know anything about LPL, really. I, I knew almost nothing about it. I heard of it, heard of it obviously, because publicly traded and it went out. But it wasn't like I had any negative or positive feelings towards the company. We actually had already, a, after quite a few months of due diligence, we had decided to join another wirehouse. Very, you know, all the wirehouses wanted us. They're all great firms, but we, we settled on one that we felt was a good fit for us after many months of um, recruiting meetings. And then, then I called John and I said, John, so I think we're going to, I not think, I said, we just signed with this company. Just want to let you know, you know, that I'm going to be going here. And I kind of kept him on loop a little bit through that process, but not, you know, we weren't to that point yet. And he wanted to let me go through my choices. And then when I told him, he said, I literally told him I just signed and turned in the paperwork. I was calling him on it on my way back. And he goes, hold on, Winnie. <laughs> Have you looked at going independent? And I'm like, going independent? What are you talking about? I don't even know what that means, right? I really literally had no idea what going independent meant. And I thought to myself that it was for somebody a lot more seasoned than us, like a lot more experienced than us. And Get, that With the caveat that you were 10 years in already. Mm -hmm. We just didn't think we were ready. Like we really didn't think we were ready for independence. And then he says, well, I'm going to take this meeting. And if you think it's interesting, then I might participate too. And we might be able to do this together. So that to me sounded exciting because I loved working with him. And the fact that I'm his only team that he wants to do this with, I'm like, okay, this says quite a bit. So we went through the meeting together and literally within two weeks, we decided to go independent. Wow. It was crazy. It was crazy. Wow. <laughs> and we turned away all that money. <laughs> so I mean, what, but, what, what did it, what led you to make that decision and, and you know, go to the independent channel and not go to another wirehouse? Well, a couple different reasons. I mean, number one, I felt they, you know, the firm that we decided to sign with, they told us that they offered us like the biggest cash offer they've ever offered. And so, that was great and then it was a lot of money, but it didn't really feel great because I felt like I don't know how I'd feel if the client asked me, did I do this really for the right reasons? Because it felt really much just like a, a you know, a, a variation what I was already used to. So it felt kind of like dirty in that way. And then, and, and then the second thing was that, you know, a big part of what I do today and what I, what I was really gung-ho about, even at Smith Barney, I said, I really want to build this thing. I need to market this thing. Like, I really need to market this thing. I need to talk to the media more often. And you can't do that in the wirehouse. I can't be on CNBC and Closing Bell or appear on Cheddar or all this stuff. And so I wanted to have that flexibility. So independence offered that, that flexibility to me. I met with LPL. They told me about all these things. It sounded incredible. The JD Power Associates like client satisfaction rating was like off the charts high, right? So everything seemed perfect. And then I could tell my clients I actually did this for them, that it was to their benefit, you know, because the, the numbers show this. And then they said, oh, but you're not going to get any money for coming here. And I was like, and I was like, Oh, wait, what? Like, you're just like, oh. And then, like, I turned to my business partner. He's like, 
yeah, no, not going to happen. <laughs> so then, so then we're driving back. It's a very long drive now, right? Going back. And I was like, I don't know. I said, it, it feels so good. And he's like, no money, Winnie, no money. I'm like, I know, but it just feels so good. I just feel like this is, this is what we should be doing. He's like, well, well, let's go to Wirehouse for a little bit and then we can come here later. <laughs> and I was like, but I want to do it now. We could do it now, you know, and nobody will go after our clients again. We'll own our clients outright, right? Cause you know, nobody go after it. So it took, I think it took Brandon, you know, a little, a little bit longer. It took him like at least a week. And then finally I get a call from him or maybe it's an office. He goes, okay, when, if you really want it, we'll do it. Cause he's just that amazing a friend. So I was like, okay. He's like, but he's like, I hope we're making the right decision. And that's, that's how we did it. <laughs> so having made the transition, like are there, are there, are there things about going independent that surprise you now as you, as you look back? I mean, has it basically gone the way that you expected or, or what was, what was different that you being independent that you didn't realize when you were in the wirehouse environment? Uh, so many things. I think, you know, um, we expected having to find our own, you know, payroll provider and our own medical benefits, that kind of stuff we were prepared for, finding our own office space, finding our own telephone. That to me wasn't foreign. I had already opened and started a very productive business prior to being in this business. So that was Easy, easy peasy. Yeah, so you'd, you'd been yeah. down the road of how, to, how yeah. to deal with that kind of that Yeah, I've already owned a business and run a business for like, you know, many years. So that was fine. But the thing that surprised me was just that, well, a couple of different things that going independent has a, like a lot of different nuances and different models and different structures and everything was so, so different, like so foreign, like complete different language. It's like going from English and speaking Spanish and it was so different. Technology is also so different, you know, in the wirehouses because uh, the fees are higher in many cases, right? And because of that, that also, a lot of that money goes to some of the best technology out there. So we had at Smith Barney, in my opinion, some of the absolute best technology and going independent, you know, we, we didn't have that. And so it took a while to get used to not having such robust tools. And is even to like this, mm-hmm? the, 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 the trading and investment research side, is that like just the CRM and managing your practice side? What, what was the, all of it, what was the, all of it, all you of just it, felt like the wirehouse technology oh, was that better than what, better. Yeah. So than what do you experience on the, on the independent side? Right. Far and away better. Not even, I think it's like comparing a 10 to like a three. I mean, it's like, it's just so much better, but I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't go backwards ever. And the reason is because going independent, and I don't think it's for everybody. I think a lot of advisors, you know, flourish in the, in the, the, the warehouse model. And that's great. But like for, for us, it's great because. I think coming from the wirehouse was such a blessing because the wirehouses taught you such intensity. So like everything was about meeting that monthly number, right? And having set goals. And there was so much competition that I always say it's like we were like trained like soldiers. And then when we went to independent model, you're like, well, like now what do I do, right? Nobody's watching me. So luckily, if you had to spend some good time at the warehouses, your work ethic continued on in the independent channel. So be, you become a dominant player in the independent model, right? Because a lot of independent advisors don't compete at your level either. So as you view it, like happy to be on the independent side, but don't regret that you started on the wirehouse side because of the, because of the training and development? Oh, I'm so glad that having both. 
Yeah, I think it was a blessing to have both. I think the Smith Barney, I don't think I could have gone directly independent because I don't think, I think I, it was kind of like Dumbo's Feather. I do think that having the, the big brand firm name behind me certainly helps, especially with some of the clientele that I work with. It's like a very high, like exclusive clientele. They like the fact that I came from a big firm, you know, that that's been helpful. So there's, there's kind of, there's like a, a boutique effect that like, well, you used to be at, at, Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, now you're independent. Like, that's okay. But if you just been independent from the start, it doesn't have the same kind of gravitas behind it. Yeah, it doesn't feel as, at least with the clients that, like, I, some of my clients are CEOs of major movie networks and television production companies, you know. So they definitely love the fact that I've already been at a big firm for over a decade. And this is what we did. I understand that, you know. And some of the nonprofits too, it's just, it's good credibility. They always reference back, oh yeah, but she used to be a Smith Barney. I'm like, yes, I used to be, or Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. So, you know, the other thing I, I've, I've got to ask about, you, you, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but, you know, as, as you went through all these changes as well, you said th- three children aged three to eight. So you were, so you were making this transition to independence without the check with like, a little one and a second on the way or like two having just been born or something. So yeah, I had a really little, I had a really little one and I had one in my tummy when I uh, left the firm. I literally was pregnant uh, with my second child. When you decided to break away and not take a check. <laughs> yeah. When I left. So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. does that, I don't know. Just, I, I, how does that, how does that play into the decision or discussion? Like, or, or did it or, or, it did. I mean, I was very upfront with everybody. I'm like, you know, because, you know, in the warehouses, it's, the environment's very different from the independent channel. I really didn't know the difference at the time. So I shared with the warehouses that I was really serious with. I mean, I wasn't showing. So I just said, you know, I just want you to know I'm actually pregnant. I'm going to have a baby in like, you know, five months from now. And they're like, oh, okay. So then we'll, you know, and then they're like, okay, well, you need this much time for transition to move all your clients. And then like, it'll take like a little, like, how long did you take last time? I said, well, I took about, you know, four to six weeks. They're like, okay, well, like a month. I'm like, okay, like, I guess I get a month. And then when I went to independent uh, uh, channel, I met with LPL, they're like, oh, that sounds, yeah, no problem. Hey, do whatever you need. Work from home. We don't care. Like, like it was just so different. Like you're, you're an, you're an independent, like you, you, you really I have no don't idea what that meant. I'm like, what do you mean though? Like, but who, like, do I need to tell you? Like, do, like, what, like, what do I do? They're like, oh no, you're like, you just do whatever you are. It's your own company. I'm like, like oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was such a foreign idea. Yeah. Huh. How do you manage that balance though? Like going through that transition with a little one on the way and then you've, you've had another since then, since you said now you, now you have three. So, and like, how do you manage that balance of, of parenting and, and business? Uh, well, uh, that is actually the reason I do social. That actually is the reason I started to do social media is because I, you know, being the personality I am, like Brandon will tell you, it's not that you need to tell me to work harder. It's, it's that you need to tell me to work less because I just tend to work a lot. So when I had children, I had to make a decision. I didn't want to be one of those parents that just had children for the sake of having children, but I actually wanted it all. I wanted to be the mom who would drop the kids to school, pick them up, volunteer, do all that. So my child really didn't miss out from me working so much, right? So when that was another, something really 
attractive to me in the independent model. So I could work from home because at the warehouses, it wasn't, they had an online system, but it wasn't, it was clunky. It wasn't easy to use versus LPL from day one. I mean, from day one, I had a laptop, so I could work anywhere. And that was for me a big deal because I wanted to have children the right way. So that's why I did social media because I, I bring in all the business for my team. I didn't want me having children meant we were slowing down in terms of growth. So that actually was, that actually my children. Right. Because otherwise like you, you got to show up at evening networking meetings and just all the, all the stuff that often goes with business development that kind of messes with your time with, with kids and family. Right. I would have to do dinners and lunches all the time and do seminars all the time. And I didn't want to do that all the time at that stage. I wanted to raise my children the way I felt that they deserved to be raised. So my husband had been bugging me for years to do social media. When Facebook first started, he was like, you should create a Facebook account. And being the introvert, I'm like, I'm not I don't want to share anything and I'm so private, right? I don't share anything. So I didn't do Facebook until the point where I finally decided to do Facebook was when I had my second child. And then by that time, my name Winnie Sun was taken everywhere. So I couldn't even get my own name anywhere. But, and there's not that many Winnie Suns in the whole world, just so you know, there's like three, but I was just so behind at this process. So finally I did social media really at the encouragement of my husband only because I felt like I needed to continue to reach clients. And be able to maintain my relationship with my kids, you know? So, and that's how I do it now. This is why I do so much now because I, I, you know, most days I drop, I go drop my kids off to school and I get home and have dinner with the kids every day too. As we get to the end here, like the other thing I'm, I'm, I've got to ask you, 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 you talked about maybe the, the, the awkward dynamics of being quote a, a double minority in the wirehouse environment. But, you know, as you know, our, our, Industry statistics are pretty abysmally bad for anything that has to do with diversity. Uh, uh, you know, 70%, 77% of CFPs are, are male, only 23% are female. That number's basically been flat for about 15 years. Business owner, female advisors is even smaller percentage. Minorities is even smaller. Like from your perspective, I mean, just what is our industry doing so wrong that we can't seem to figure out how to move the needle on either racial or gender diversity? Well, I think that I've said this many times, but I think the most, one of the most important things we need to change is if we're not only going to attract women and minorities, but also just the next generation, we got to come up with a maternity leave program. In our industry in 2017, there is no maternity leave program. So like when I went on maternity leave the first time, there was nothing. There was no like real program. I just went to talk to my manager and we just sort of figured it out. And I was continuing to update him on when I was coming back. That has to change. When only 10 or 20% are female and not all of them are necessarily having children or of childbearing age. like You don't you, need a program. <laughs> you, yeah, you were like, well... Only one out of every 30 people actually has a baby here. So I guess we don't need much of a maternity policy. Yeah, there's no policy. So they're like, but if you think about it, like the next generation, th- these are important things for them. And I think that I remember being pregnant in the warehouse with my first child. I hid my pregnancy for the first six or seven months while I could. I was working like I was wearing baggier suits, like dark black suit and dark blues, because I just felt like I couldn't be open with my pregnancy, that they weren't embracing. And I felt like, like they were like vultures. They were just coming after my book. You know, if it was just not a very positive environment. 
if you know when he's going to be pregnant, then you know that there's a window coming up where you can call on her clients to try to get them. Yeah, you can call her clients. You can, you can create a relationship with me, take my clients. And, and so I didn't feel like I had the option to stay in like by myself as a sole practitioner. I felt like I had to have a business partner. Luckily, you know, Brandon has been such a blessing in my life in, in, in friendship and in business. So he was a great partner for me, but I didn't feel like I had the options. Like looking back, I don't think I could have done it without Brandon. Like I would have lost business and clients. Because that was, that was part of the, the stability and continuity of your team that like, no, no vultures, you can't come in. We're a partner team and Brandon's still here. So you, you, he's marking the territory. So the vultures can't come in. Like, I mean, that's really just, that's part of the dynamic in the, in the environment that you were in at the time that, that like yeah, pressure. I think it's still, and I've talked to people in the industry, I think it's still sort of like that. And also I think that the other thing is management needs to change. And I, I, I feel like I used to hear people say this and I would think it's ridiculous because I, I'm not the type of person to change trends. I mean, not, I'm not a trend changer, I used to say, in the, the, the bureaucracy of companies. But I do think that until management starts to look a little differently, I remember in the wirehouse, the first when I was working in LA at Smith Barney, there would be this breakfast group, this little breakfast group that we would do every Friday. A group of the manager would bring a group of advisors every Friday to breakfast. And it was always... Uh, breakfast with 10 white men. <laughs> yeah, men. Exactly. Men, male, and then so you always knew women were not invited and it was just kind of understood. And, and I think about that now, like, you know, that was so bad back then. But if they had really embraced this, not just saying, well, you get extra bonus for hiring a double minority, but just saying like, we actually can like I remember when I was interviewing even, I interviewed with a female manager at a different branch and she she gave me a lower offer than she would pay her assistant. She just didn't believe that I could do business. And I remember that feeling. I'm like, I don't want to work for you, but I'm going to prove you wrong, you know? But I think it's, but I think like we have you to. Wouldn't work with, you wouldn't work for her for the pay. You just work for her to spider. Yeah, but I didn't work for her at all. But it's interesting because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about business and about our clients, right? But the great thing about it is that your clients don't care what you look like. Your clients care about that they, they like you and they trust you, right? So it's so funny because our clients come in all different flavors. So why do advisors only come in one flavor? <laughs> <laughs> well, well said. Well said. So, so as we, as we come to the end here, and this is a, a show about success and, and advisors that have had some success and, and, you know, we've long observed on the podcast that success just that the word itself means different things to different people, or right? Like some it's, it's driven around dollars. Some is driven around growth. Some is driven around legacy. Some is driven around balance, like lo- lots of different things that define sex, success for us. So, I'm I'm curious as you look forward for your for your path from here. How do you define success? Uh, I define success when my children say that mom was the best mom, and that's it. Because I think that means that I was present in their lives. I was able to provide financial support to them, and I was there to be for them. and And that to me is the only thing that matters. Amen. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I'm a huge fan of you. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that as well. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.